Dennis Kinlaw served as an evangelist, pastor, educator, and administrator from 1944 to 2017. Passionate about sharing biblical truth, Dr. Kinlaw became a significant voice for holiness in the 20th century. We hope you enjoy this message from Dr. Kinlaw. I have three passages of scripture that I want to share with you this morning or turn your attention to, and I'd love it if you would uh, take your Bibles and follow them so that you've seen at least some of the text in your eyes and you've got it in your mind as we think. The first is in the third chapter of Exodus, beginning. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, Here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Now the second passage is in Exodus also, Exodus 19. In the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on the very day they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. The third passage is from the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, 
which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. We were speaking on Monday about uh, God and our language and the problem that God has with our language. Just a moment of review, we said that the God that you find in Scripture is very different from the other gods of the world. And that one of those differences is that he's very social by nature. He likes companionship. And we commented on the fact that the word companion comes from that Latin preposition with and the Latin noun panis for bread. So he wants people that he can eat with, socialize with. And as we said, uh, it's interesting that the central ceremony in the Christian church is a symbolical meal. That has an old history to it, doesn't it? Because that was the central ceremony in Israel and is still among Jews to this day, the Passover. It's interesting that we now are in Ramadan and the Muslims celebrate for a month of fasting. But the central ceremony in Israel's existence is the Passover where the family has a great meal together. Now, that Passover festival is the preliminary preparation for our understanding of the sacrifice of Christ and the Lord's, and that then is commemorated in the Lord's Supper. But there is a note about the Lord's Supper that we must always remember. There's an eschatological note about it. That is, it not only causes us to look back to the death of Christ for us and his atonement for us for our sins, but it also causes us to look forward to that day when we will sit together with him in the marriage supper of the Lamb, and we will be the bride. We will be the center of attention in that incredible feast when God sits down to eat with us. Now we said he seeks us because he seeks companionship. Whether we want the companionship or not, he still seeks us. He seeks those that ignore him, and he seeks those who don't believe. And he seeks those even who hate him. And he's unhappy when he can't have companionship with you and when he can't have companionship with me. He is like that shepherd who had one sheep that was lost and he could not sleep until he found it. And like the lady who had lost a coin and she could not rest until she had rediscovered it. And like the father whose living life was one of trauma until his son returned. He wants us now, but he also is one who talks. This is one of the things that makes him different from the other gods of the world because the idols of the world, they cannot speak, but he can speak. He's vocal. And whether you hear him or not or whether I hear him or not, he still speaks. And when he speaks, there's always creative potential in it. That's what brought the universe into existence. And when he speaks, it's always revealing. Because you see, John tells us that 
Jesus was the word of God. God was speaking through his son to us. John said about that, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has revealed him, exegeted him, interpreted God to us, to the extent that when he appeared among us, he could say, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, and if you know me, you know the Father, because I've come to let you know what he is like. And his talk is always convincing and convicting. Uh, because there is something about it when he speaks to us, if we hear, we know he speaks only right and only truth. But he has a problem communicating with us. And a big part of that problem, part of that problem is the deadness of our heart. As a fallen creation, there is something that has deadened us to him so that we use language like in the, that we get in our hymns. We're blind. And we're dead in trespasses and sins, biblical language as well as hymnal language. But there is another factor, and that is that our language is totally inadequate to speak, to convey to us what he wants to say. Because, you see, our language reflects our world and our world's realities. Our language speaks of things that we know, things we on our own can see, we can touch and handle, and we can conceive. But if it's not in our world, we don't have a word for it. But his world is a totally different world, very different from ours. There are realities there that are not a part of any of our experiences unless we let him into our lives so that we can have those experiences, and then we need language to describe what's happened. And he wants desperately to be a part of your world and mine. Now, it's important that we be a part of his world, because, you see, his world is the original world and the ultimate world. It's the one from which our world came. It's the source. But it's not only the source, it's the one that gives existence to our world today. All things are sustained by that world, by him who is there. The next breath that you breathe will be a gift given to you from him. Now, it is also the ultimate world. No matter where you came from, I know where you're going. Because you're going to his world because there's no way to escape it. Funny thing, the scripture says that our world will pass the one you can see, but the one you can't see is the one you can't escape. Now, he wants us to be a part of that permanent, eternal world. And so, he's looking for companions in it. But how is he going to explain to us, with our inadequate language, what he is really like and what that life is like, since we have no words for it? He can use our words, but when he uses them, they're so limited. As we said the other day, take off on that old anthropological saw, two people doing the same thing may not be doing the same thing. Two people saying the same words may not be saying the same thing. So he uses our language. But our language does not convey to us the realities of that world. So how can he speak to us? Well, it's interesting, he has to convert words as well as people. 
And conversion is a remarkable experience. We call it new birth. And when you are born again, you're not the same person you were the day, the, the moment before. You are a new creature, as he says, and you're in a new world. A transformation has taken place. You know, God has to do the same thing with language that he does for us. Take, for instance, the very word eternity. We speak of him as the eternal one, and we speak of his world as the eternal world. We speak of eternity. That's, we speak of, that's God's world and time is our world. So we use a phrase, time and eternity. And when we use that phrase, we're trying to express the difference between our world of time and his world that is eternal. Now, how is he going to communicate to us the nature of his world? The interesting thing is that that word which we use, eternal, or eternity, has had a dramatic conversion experience. Because, you see, it comes originally from the Latin, etos, etatis, which simply means a lifetime. But when you and I speak of eternity, we are thinking about something that transcends a human life. It can mean, it can mean an age, a period of time, or a generation. Now, the interesting thing is that when the New Testament speaks about this, it has the same problem. Because, you see, the Greek word which we translate eternal is the word ionos, from which we get the English word eon. And what does it mean? I looked up in Liddell and Scott's classical Greek dictionary, had four definitions. One, one's lifetime. (laughs) Second, one's time of life. I lived in the 20th century. An age or a generation or a space of time. You see, the very word that we translate eternal is a word that has no nothing in it to connote eternity, except its association with Yahweh, the God of Israel, and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's interesting, Hebrews trapped in the same way, because the Hebrew word for uh, eternal is the word olam, which means of long duration, but all time. It can be used for antiquity, all time. It can even be used for futurity, but it's all time. Either way you look, it's the same, it's time. But I want to ask you, is God's world simply more of what we see here? I hope not. When Jesus speaks to us about eternal life, I hope he's not saying it's going to be more the same of this stuff. If you read his, read the Gospels, it's evident he's talking about something radically different. Now, uh, how does God communicate to us the nature of what it means to be eternal? I love the way it's developed in the Scripture. You know how it begins? It begins with Moses, this passage, when he's tending his sheep. And he looks over and sees this bush burning and shouldn't be plain there, and a green bush shouldn't burn anyway. And so he stops to see this remarkable thing. Notice that the leaves are not turning brown. 
And he's standing there in awe when a voice speaks to him and says, Moses, Moses, take off your shoes, your sandals. Because the ground you're standing on is holy ground. He said, now I want you to go and tell your leaders that I'm going to get you out of Egypt. And he says, when I go tell the leaders this, they're going to ask me what your name is. And God says, well, I'll tell you my name. He says, my name is I Am. Now, you've got to read the rest of the Bible to know what he's saying. Because you see, when he says, I am, he's not saying I'm the one who was, or I'm the one who will be. Ultimately, if you read the Bible clearly, you'll find out what he's saying is, I am above that time process. And I'm not trapped in it the way you are. So I'm not the one who was or the one who is to be. I'm the one who is eternally. I am. Now, it's fascinating to me the way the Scripture keeps working to develop that, to help us understand that. I love the Hebrew language because it's so graphic and down to earth. There's a phrase in the Old Testament that I'll never forget when I first first noticed it where one is speaking about Yahweh, about the God whose name is I Am, he says, life with him is L'Olam Ba'ad. A literal translation is, for an age and unto. And the interesting thing is, there's no object to the preposition unto. (laughs) So the prophet is saying, this God and his kingdom It is for an age and unto. An age doesn't describe it. It, There's an openness to it. And that openness, you see, he's beginning to get, he's beginning to try to say what we mean when we speak of that which is eternal. And so Jesus, when he came along, was talking about uh, to the Jews, and they said, well, now our father is Abraham. And Jesus (laughs) threw them into total confusion by saying, before Abraham was, I am. And I'm sure they had cold chills and goose pimples and said, wait a minute, what's he saying? That's the name of the eternal God. But Jesus said, yeah, I lived before I came into Mary's womb. And I will live after you've nailed me to a cross. And when time is no more, I'll exist as much as I exist now. Now, it's interesting, when you get to the book of Revelation, John tries to uh, tries to explain this. So he uses a phrase about God. He says, God is the one who was and is and is to come. He breaks out, you see. Let me read for you just the introduction, some introductory lines from the book of Revelation. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and is to come, or who is and who was and is to come. I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Do not be afraid. I am the first and I am the last. I was in control at the beginning. I'm in control now and you don't need to worry. I'll be in control when 
all that you know about is all over one. He transcends time. He will outlive you. He will outlive me. When you and I get to our end, there he'll stand. Now, you know, we'll be in a whale of a lot better position if we've learned to talk to him. If we're on speaking terms when we get there. If we're in communication. Now, you and I may ignore him. We may not believe. We may even hate, like like Saul of Tarsus, the thought of him. But we will not escape. Now, that's not a threat. It's just information, which the world does not know. He is just the ultimate fact of every life. We will all meet him. So he wants us to know what he's going to be like when we bump into him and can't escape him. But how's he going to tell us? He's got the same problem with uh, words about his nature that he has about that word eternal. You know, there's a real sense in which the story of Scripture, the story of the Bible, is the story of the conversion of words because he is so eager to communicate with us. Take, for instance, the word of all the words in Scripture to describe him. The word which you may have noticed and picked up as I read those three Scriptures, because it's in all three, uh, when he, God said to Moses, take your shoes off, because I'm here and the ground I'm standing on is holy, and it's holy because I stand on it, because I'm the Holy One. When he said to Israel, I brought you out of Egypt, not just to freedom and not to a new land, but I brought you to myself. You're to be a kingdom of priests and an holy nation. Now, he says, and then in Isaiah, where the seraphim are singing in the presence of God, the triune cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And the ones who built this chapel were sensitive to the heart, the absolute heart of Scripture when they put the inscription above the organ, holiness under the Lord. Because you see, if you'll read Leviticus, you will find that what God said to his people was, I want you to be holy, for I am holy. But now, the Old Testament is very clear about the fact that we're to be holy, but what does it mean to be holy? If you read the Old Testament carefully, you'll find that the thing it labors is the fact that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the source of all holiness. That there is nothing that exists that it has any holiness in itself unless it is in a right relationship with the one who is the Holy One. So if there's any holiness in you or me, it's a derived holiness that comes from that one who is seeking our companionship and wants to walk with us. Nothing in our world is holy in itself. So as a result, we really have no word for what is really holy as God understands holy. So, to communicate with us, he had to convert a word. And it's a fascinating story. He picked out a Hebrew root, a Q, a D, and an S-H-N. Put the shut together. 
That's the basic structure of the Hebrew word. The consonants are what count uh, to tell you the basic meaning. And so the word kodesh is a noun for holiness. The word uh, kadosh is the adjective holy. And the word kadosh is the verb to be holy. And in one form to make holy. Kadesh is a holy male person. And a kudeshah is a holy female person. Now what's the basic idea in it? It's separation. But not just separation, it is separation to the religious. Separation to the divinities. To a divinity, to a god. And so uh, it is used, but the problem is, the gods in that world were not at all like Yahweh. So to be separated to one of those gods was very different from being separated to Yahweh. But God, Yahweh took that word with its basic idea of separation and said, we'll convert it. And this brings us to one of the ironies of Scripture. The first person in the Bible who's called that root Kadesh is used of was a woman who was playing the role of a prostitute. Because in Canaan, a Kadeshah, a holy woman, was a sacred prostitute. She had given her virginity to her God. And she served him by meeting the sexual desires of the God's male worshippers. Now, the interesting thing is, there was a masculine counterpart to that, a Kadesh. And a Kadesh was a homosexual priest who gave his body to God, his God, and served his God by meeting the sexual desires of men who wanted their sexual desires satisfied with a man. Now, it's a long journey (laughs) from Genesis 38 in Tamar to Isaiah in the temple, where the seraphim are crying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Now, uh, what about that story? You've got that story of the burning bush? Then you've got that story of you're to be a holy nation. Exodus 19. Then Isaiah, Leviticus 11, be ye holy, for I am holy. Now, uh, how did he take a word which didn't say what he wanted to say? What he had to do was give it a completely different context. A totally different association. So it could be filled with a meaning that was not there originally. Except for the fact of the abstract sense of separation. So he did it by associating it with himself. So you don't define God as holy. You define holiness by Yahweh, by God. Now, did you catch me on that? If you want to know what God is, 
and you say holy, you've got to remember that he's the one who puts the content in the term holy. And when he says, I am to be holy, I am to be holy the way he is in terms of that which is his own nature. Now, where do you get a picture of this? It's very interesting that the best picture you get is in Exodus 20. And that's the passage, you know, where uh, we get uh, the law. What we speak of is the Sinaitic law. God says, I brought you out of Egypt. I brought you on eagle's wings to myself. You are to be a treasured possession to me. And that word is a jeweler's word. It means an object of great exquisite beauty, of incredible value, and that brings great delight to the person that owns it. This week I looked in the face of an Asbury College student who'd just been given a diamond. And the interesting thing was it was a real one. <laughs> I wondered where the guy got the money for it. But you know, as we stood, it wasn't large. But as we stood, as we looked, and she turned her hand. I was astounded at how bright the light was. It came flashing out of that thing. Now he says, that's what you were to be to me. And if you're holy, that's what you will be. An object of great beauty. An object of exquisite delight. And an object of incredible value to me. Now, uh, how... How do you get that, and what does it really mean? You know, uh, I said, the way he changed the meaning for us was by associating it with himself. Uh, stick with me for a minute on something that uh, has, has influenced my thinking profoundly. You know, we're living in a day of ethical and moral collapse. It's in the Wall Street Journal, it's in the New York Times, it's in the Evening News. We live in a day of ethical and moral collapse. You say, well, what do you mean by ethical? That was my question. What do you mean by moral? Now, hear me. Do you know where the word uh, ethics came from? It comes from a Greek word, ethos, which means custom. Or manners. So when the guy stole billions of dollars, he really was ill-mannered. <laughs> and, you know, it's that thing, we just don't do that around here. Our culture does not approve of this. And the word moral, what is immorality? The word comes from the Latin most moris, from which we get more And it means custom or habit. But you know, there's a great threat connected with violation of the Ten Commandments. And you get the feeling it's more than violation of doing something that isn't customary. (laughs) 
you get the feeling there's an eternal penalty connected with it. And so we turn morality into something from custom to law. And we talk about it as an eternal law, natural law. Now, how did we get there? You know how that word got there? By association with Yahweh. Because it was not a part of the Greek world. Nor was uh, most Morris a part of, uh, in, in the sense that we use it. It was the association with Yahweh. Because you know what Yahweh said? He said, thou shalt not steal. And he said, that's not, I'm not talking about custom. I'm talking about something that is highly offensive to me. And if you steal, you're not in trouble with your culture. If you cheat, you're not in trouble with primarily with the teacher or the provost. You're in trouble with Yahweh. Because he said, I don't like it. There are certain sanctities in life. And your property is sacred to you, and I don't have a right to touch it, even if it's something on another guy's exam paper. And he says, thou shalt not commit adultery. And so when you commit adultery, you're not breaking a custom. You're doing violation to something that Yahweh says is sacred. It's holy. And so he says, the last word in the Bible I noticed. I've always wondered what the people who believe in once in grace, always in grace do with it. In Revelation 22:15, he's talking about the final separation of the righteous, those that are saved from those that are not. And he says, and on the outside are the adulterers. And it doesn't say the adulterers who haven't been converted. It doesn't say the adulterers who haven't been saved. It doesn't say the adulterers who haven't had a new birth experience. It just says bluntly, on the outside are the adulterers. Because, you see, the Holy One says the human sexuality is sacred and is not to be violated. So the definitions of these words are determined by how you relate them to Yahweh. If you can separate them from Yahweh, you can do all sorts of things. But if he's the one who is and was and is to come and he is the first and the last and you're headed for him, then you're going to explain to him why you violated his standard of holiness. That's going to be as true for me as it is for you, because preachers have no privileged position on this one. He didn't say the non-preachers who commit adultery will be in trouble. It just said those who commit it. Now, you see, the morality and the ethics come from his nature. You know, uh, I'm very grateful. You know, I've decided that God is, is the great school teacher. And the, the greatest of all schools is not the college or 
the public school system. It's the home. And the most important years you get are the youngest ones. The younger you are, the more important the school is. So what you're doing now is far more important than graduate school. I'm glad that in my home my parents taught me some things. I lived in the Depression days when uh, I couldn't join the Boy Scouts because it cost a nickel a week and nine bucks for, for a uniform. So money, I coveted. So early one morning when I was in grade school, I got up early in the morning and when my mother wasn't looking, slipped into her purse and got me a dollar bill. I'd never owned a dollar bill before. Of course, I didn't own that one, but I had it in my possession. So then I walked out and up the street a little ways and conveniently found it lying on the sidewalk. And came back and reported to my mother with great pride, look what I found this morning up the sidewalk. You know, she didn't even look at me and say, you know, it's unusual for you to take morning walks like this. But we ate our breakfast, and when we finished our breakfast, she looked at my siblings and said, and then at me, and she said, Dennis, I don't think you feel very well today, do you? I think maybe because you don't feel well, you probably ought to stay home with me and let me see if I can help you feel better. I knew I was in trouble. So I sat down in front of the fireplace, and she finished breakfast and the dishes and came in and sat down next to me. I looked into her face, and a tear rolled down her cheek. And, you know, they can speak, too. And she said, Honey... You didn't find that dollar bill on the sidewalk. You found it in my purse. I'm so sorry that we do not have the money to give you so that at refreshment time you can buy refreshments like other students. If I had a million dollars, I'd love to give it all to you. But what grieves me is that today you've broken the heart. She didn't know the word Yahweh. But that's what you meant of God. Aren't you sorry? Don't you want to ask him to forgive you? Now, you know, I'm glad she did that. Because that was my first lesson in getting ready for the ultimate meeting. And the standard came through crystal clear. as to what it is. And, you know, I've had a sense of the holy. I've had some great teachers, but if I listed the greatest one, I'd have to list Sally Bernie Kinlaw. <laughs> she taught me eternal realities I've never been able to get away from. And again and again, when the temptation has come, I've suddenly been aware that there he was. Did I want to grieve him and break my fellowship with him and lose that saving, powerful 
creative presence out of my life. A hunger started then. I hope that hunger is in you. Will you pray with me? Lord, what a privilege it is to be a part of a Christian community and a Christian academic community. In all our learning, let us learn your language. Let us pay any price to learn. And we'll give you praise in Christ's name. Amen. For more information, contact Cricket Albertson at cricket.albertson at francisasburysociety.com.